Alan, are you there? Yes, I am, yeah. Uh, I, I can't believe the difficulty we had this morning. Uh, it's pretty standard. <laughs> it was so odd. I'm, I'm dialing the number that, you know, it's saying I'm, it's out of order. Uh-huh. And I forwarded it to the uh, program director. And I said, could you figure this thing out? Uh-huh. And between my computer and her computer, the number changed. Really? Yeah, okay. That's weird. Yeah, well, I, I, I picked up the phone. I realized it was after 10 past and to phone you. And I had, uh, had uh, there's someone else on the phone, and I hadn't dialed anywhere, and it didn't ring here, you know. I think uh, they're trying to put the squeeze on us, Alan. Yeah, it's pretty common. Uh, it, it, they're watching us everywhere, aren't well, they? Well, they are, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been telling folks you were one of the foremost experts, uh, historian and researchers on the secret societies and Illuminatis, and you go all the way back to the beginning of dirt on this stuff. Yeah, you have to. Um it's not a, a recent thing to control vast populations of people. It's been um, recorded from ancient times and taught to the high courts of kings and queens down through the ages. And it simply got much, much bigger and more refined when it went into large governments with bureaucracies and uh, secret services like the CIA and, and these kinds of things. So a society has always been planned ahead of time because those in power literally plan the future. They don't want to lose control, but they must convince the public that they're on the cutting edge of evolution with each generation. And it never dawns on them then that every major thing that happens in their life has actually been planned ahead of time. <laughs> and that's yeah. why it works so well. Yeah. The, the earliest mind control guy, uh, was, it, was it Nimrod? It goes back even further. Uh, it depends even whose histories you take, uh, because in, um, India probably has the oldest histories uh, in their archives, because every every country has archives as opposed to public libraries Government for the like, people. Governments like to keep records. Uh, yeah, they do, because if something works and a formula works, then you never change the formula, but you don't want the public to know that you have the formulas, because even Plato himself talked about um, the techniques of creating cultures for whole peoples and whole countries, and how it was well understood in his day, and how nothing would be allowed to happen in the culture that would upset the dominant minority, the rulers, and therefore the dominant minority had to employ great thinkers, great philosophers, and, uh, and people within academy to, to uh, always update and, and help uh, modify the culture from the top down. Yeah, and, uh, and that's what we've had mainly in this. It was great to live in the, in the 70s and the 80s and, and watch the, the tail end of the, the pop rock culture and how it was really pushed from the top by multi-multi-billionaires, really. It wasn't a grassroots thing at all. We always think it's our idea, don't we? We do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the, the best ways to control civilization, and I've always suspected this, was through an, an omnipresent God. Huh. Um, if if you're going to be around government controls, so you're going to live out in the country or whatever, well, there's always that that fallback thing that you know the, there's a God watching you, and so you just better go ahead and pay your taxes. And yes. I think the early kings or the or the, the Masons or the echelon, I guess, the elites figured this out that hey, mm-hmm. to keep these people in line and not overthrow me, one they got to think I'm. I'm connected to the gods, mm-hmm. or I am a god myself, yeah. and I'm everywhere, and you can't overthrow me because I'm here to protect you. I'm a wonderful guy, and um, you know, protect you from invasion, but you guys got to pay attention, and you know, that way you won't kill me when I come and ask for your gold. Yes, and, and uh, that, that came even... Uh, this, this structure existed before the days of Sumer. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, the uh, Sumer really was a sort of, um, I would call it more modern... A prototype of, of the present-day society, and they obviously had the knowledge from previous civilizations, the Hurrian civilization that existed before that. So we're going back 10,000 years, 15,000 years, and... and um, it just seems so hard to wrap your hands around mm-hmm. a dynasty or families that can stay in power behind the scenes and control nations, control money supplies, control mm-hmm. wars, c- control famines. Yeah. It's like no, people really aren't that evil, or, or how come uh, they haven't interbred in the, yeah. you know, how come we're not 
Yes, uh, and that's the technique again. Uh, kings and queens always had front people to speak for them. It's no different from today. Today we have governments to speak really for an elite, and, and we're, we're taught to believe that governments are in charge, so the governments take the heat off the real rulers. That's the job of the front men. Uh, and Britain they always had a chancellor or something before that for a king, and he would take the heat for all the decisions that were made because the king was above all of that, you see. He was a nice guy. And it kept him a nice guy, so that the chancellor would take the heat. Uh, so it's the same thing in all ages. Today we have a better cover called democracy in most of the countries. And uh, democracy is a favorable thing. Plato talked about it in 2,300 years ago. He said uh, this, this system, this perfect utopia for the elite, the guardian class, he called them, um, will, will use a form of a republican democracy. And because democracy, you can always count that 80% of the people will do what the elite want them to do. And therefore, they'll pretend it's majority rule. But 80% will do what they're told to do. That's what it really meant. Yeah. It's so obvious today. I mean, we just, there was just a vote in our U.S. Senate uh, yesterday. Uh, and I think it was 99 to 0 about basically reprimanding Iran and saying, if you continue to... Fund uh, bad guys over there. Uh, we're not going to like it. And he's like, mm -hmm. no debate. It's like they turned on the the mist machine and they all went to sleep, or they're all under some sort of gigantic mind control. And I thought, well, that's the most worthless bill or stupid thing I've ever heard in my life. And it's a hundred percent both. I, I know, and this is the thing too. We to realize that there there's consensus behind the scenes through societies within government. Uh, all major politicians, if, they, if they've stayed in government for more than one term, even in the lower ranks, uh, they're allowed into a higher uh, sub, uh, parallel rank where they're told part of the agenda and they must agree to abide by the rules of the decisions made by their superiors. And so they vote the way they're told to vote. Uh, Carl Quigley, Professor Carl Quigley, uh, wrote about this in his book Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American establishment. Now he was authorized to pick people to be Rhodes Scholars for world government. That was the purpose of the Rhodes Scholarships. He, he picked Bill Clinton amongst others. And he was the, the official historian uh, for the Council on Foreign Relations. This parallel group uh, that actually makes, they, in fact, they drafted up all the plans for the American integration, this, this non-governmental organization. <laughs> and, uh, and they are, uh, simply the American branch of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. That's the British Commonwealth branch. And so it's run from London. And, um, uh, he wrote about this and he, he was all for it. He was part of them. He was a member. And uh, he, he said then in the 1960s in his book, he said uh, uh, the United States government has been run by a parallel government uh, for at least 60 years, and that was in the 1960s. And he, he talked about the whole agenda. He, fill in, he filled in all the little blank spots of, of what led up to wars and what was behind them and admitted that he and his group and other, other groups that belonged to the same circle worked in concert to bring on these wars. And, uh, and they laid out the plans for the whole global empire for the future. And um, he, it's not just the politicians that they bring in, certain politicians. It's also a vast amount of your higher bureaucrats, because the bureaucrats are more important, and they have been since World War I with the League of Nations, because then the, the, the bureaucrats are, have lifelong positions in particular offices and departments, and they bypass the government and go straight to their, their headquarters, at the, which is now the United Nations. We're on the air with Alan Watt. Uh, you can go to his website at cuttingthroughthematrix.net. And uh, you've got uh, three books out right now, or one, you're a, a three-volume mm -hmm. set. Yep. Uh, cutting through the volumes one, two, and three. It's available for our listeners out here. Go onto his website. You can order it directly. He also has DVDs um, that will you'll never think the same. One of the things we're doing down here, Alan, is that we have embarked on an agenda here at the station. I own it. Mm -hmm. We're a little small station here, but we're the most powerful station in the northwest up here. That time, I sense the time is very, very short. And yeah. what we have now 
got to get the information, get the truth out here as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons we wanted you here on the, on the show. Is like we're trying to lift the matrix that everybody's been under here. And it seems like we're finding out every core belief we've had or every political thought is, has been a lie. Yes, it has. It, it truly has. I mean, I was, uh, I was discussing with some people uh, about the, the, the problems with the Middle East and why it's going on. And I said, you have to go back into the memoirs of uh, British officials, um, sort of consular generals, people that were put in charge of whole countries that the British Empire set up a long time ago, and read their own memoirs. And you'll find, for instance, that um, Sir Ronald Storrs, S-T-O-R-R-S, was uh, the, the lieutenant governor. He was put in charge of of the British takeover of the country called Palestine back in the 1920s and 30s in preparation for the creation of a state of Israel. And uh, and what he said in his own memoirs, and, and it's very flippant for those who don't understand history. It's very important, a very little a little quip, and that's how history is made or missed. He said, "We have set up in the Middle East." another um, Ulster. Now, Ulster and Ireland was set up by London to cause frequent dis- uh, dissension and troubles done through to the present century in, in Ireland uh, with the Protestants and the Catholics, using religion primarily as, as a motive of war and eventual takeover. It was to keep a, a constant pot boiling and simmering that the whole world would feel the effects of. And that's how far back we're talking, 1920s. I think Samuel Adams said fear is the foundation of most governments. It is. And, and then you hit on something that was very profound for me. It's like governments fear peacetime. Yes, they do. Uh, they admit themselves uh, that uh, the, first, the first reason for government existing is to protect uh, the rest of the little people, uh, even in a tribal situation, from those guys over there. Uh, across the other side of that pond that you drink off, out of, and um, and so the biggest guy in the tribe was picked. Now the problem then is, uh, if you start spoiling the big guy, and and he has to drop back down into your way of living, your standards of living, he might not like it. But at least a tribe could overcome one person, and that's why the tribal system it was easier. He couldn't get a standing army together be- until money came along. Money was the key to standing armies. And also the little guy like. Way to the middle class that once you start to gain cash or affluence or, or spare time, mm-hmm. you can do positive things with that. Whether you want to run for office or you want to yeah. uh, do charity work or start buildings, uh, mm-hmm. you become you know wealthier and wealthier, and becomes a threat to them. It, it becomes a threat, and that's why uh, people think that you and we're all trained. You see, the whole world. When you think of a whole world trained to go to use this thing called money, which is really a trick. Uh, because once they bring money in, they can tax the tr- back from you. And the, the word tax means to labor. You tax yourself when you labor. And they, they take part of your labor back. Then they, they employ more people. And as long as everyone believes in this money, you can hire armies, whole armies and police and um, think tanks to keep the people dominated. Money is the key to it, yeah. I think there was a quote from uh, one of the old Rothschild major women that said, Wars don't start unless my boys want them to start. Hey, that's right. They don't start. Uh, I was watching uh, a program two, two years ago on public broadcasting, and it was about the troubles in Sierra Leone. And Sierra Leone, of course, is rich in tremendous minerals and diamonds and so on. And they found out that uh, companies, these uh, companies in Britain primarily and New York, working in tandem had hired uh, thousands of mercenaries, uh, British and American primarily, to go in there and train the natives to to have revolutions in order that they could take over the the vast uh, diamond fields there. And they talked to one of the guys at the head of one of these big London corporations of gold and and precious metals and diamonds and platinums, and, and he literally couldn't understand the reporter when the reporter says, how can you possibly plan something like this and kill thousands of people for money? And the man looked and he sort of was incredulous. He says, it's business, don't you understand? That was his answer. It's business. 
He said, they're sitting on all that land and doing nothing with it. Yeah. So, so kill them. Yeah, well, you know, use it for ourselves. Uh-huh. Exploit it, make them slaves. Now, there's the Rockefellers. I mean, our audience is, is very much aware of the, the Federal Reserve Act and the Income Tax Act and how the, these criminals, the ruling families or the wealthiest families then, mm-hmm. basically came in and created their own money supply and own our money supply. And yeah. A lot of people are still ignorant about that, but mm-hmm. not this audience. Yes. And we've watched the dollar value go from, you know, well, it's worth a penny today compared yeah. to what it was. Um, and Montana, just from the 60s, went from the fourth in per capita income in the nation to dead last right now because we were a resource-based state here. And, you know, they you know what they've all done with our resources. They locked them up, sent them all overseas, and now we import them. Yeah. Um, so there's an agenda to destroy America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just can't figure what mindset these people have mm-hmm. because... America was good to them. They made money. And uh, now, yeah, yeah. you know, they're like, well, let's merge Canada mm-hmm. and Mexico with the United States. That plan's going on, mm-hmm. you know, and the rest of the world's starting to reject this Federal Reserve note. So, aha, well, we can issue you a new currency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all we're living through is a business plan. The whole world is just one big, long business plan. And Karl Marx talked about the unification of the Americas. Uh, in, in the 1850s, he, he, he wrote about it, and he said, "Eventually, the world that we are planning." Now, Karl Marx, remember, was employed by the Rothschilds in London while he wrote the Communist Manifesto with a bunch of people, a whole team of people. It wasn't just one person who did it. He was a, a failed journalist, and that's why they hired him, not because of his belief system. And so, Karl Marx talked about the uh, the, the unification of the world under a super government, which would come probably in a hundred years' time or to the end of the millennium. And he said um, there will also be three main trading blocks. A united Europe will be first, followed by a united Americas, and then followed by um, a united Pacific region. And that's exactly what they've been uh, working towards. I think some people may have the misconception or that there's going to be global governments like, ah, well, okay, finally we're going to have a place to settle our differences like the UN or there's going to be a, a world premier or three premiers and we'll have this great body of government to run the world. I don't see it that way. I see the shadow government mm-hmm. running the world and yeah. the illusion of countries still around. Uh, yes, the, 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 the whole thing is to always use nationalism and this was the key even with communism. Communism was the flip side of capitalism. It was two sides of the same coin. It was a dialectic technique of steering the populations of the world into where they wanted them to be, the big sheep pen. And, uh, and, and so the whole agenda was to get the public to use nationalism, uh, first of all, and, and then through nationalism and wars and conflict, they would come to uh, war weariness and then they would suggest we amalgamate to end the wars and then give up your nationalism gradually. The only country really that's had an overdose of nationalism is the United States. The rest of the countries have had the rug pulled from underneath them uh, about 50 years ago, gradually. So they, because the United States was chosen to be the engine to bring all this about. And as the U.S. is finishing off its main job of standardizing the world in the Middle East, they would gradually bring the U.S. down to the same world standard as everyone else. I've been warning people that for decades, that this, this idea of unions and treaties is not, even though they say it's going to, oh, American exports, American jobs, raise our standard of living. Yeah. No, no, no. It is to lower ours to theirs. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, uh, Morris Strong, for instance, Morris Strong works for... For, he was first signed off with um, uh, Rockefeller. He was chosen and groomed. And he's a big player for the United Nations and, uh, and big enterprises across the globe. But he also drafted up the Earth Charter, which gives everything else rights except us, humans. And he was asked at the end of the 92 Earth Charter meeting, what he meant about uh, the rights of, of animals, he said, he said, and why don't you give humans rights? Now, this is an American who was asking him the question, and he says, you Americans, he says, you'll wish you had the rights of trees by the time we're finished. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, you hit on something. I've heard you on other shows do this, and I've listened to you quite a bit on uh, your website. Now, for our audience out there, it's cuttingthroughthematrix.net. I encourage you 
please buy his DVDs. Um, we can't cover everything here today. Uh, Alan, you also do a weekly blurb, I think, on there too, don't you? I do about three generally, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so we, we want to uh, get our audiences acquainted with you as they possibly can through your books, through your DVDs, and uh, through your uh, uh, internet broadcast you have on your website there. So if you're just hearing Alan for the first time today, I, I hope I can, you know, interrupt me and you take over any time. We've we got to get in the right direction, Alan. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, you hit on something about America's democratization of the Middle East or mm -hmm. standardization over there. Explain a little bit what the future and the plan is for the United States. A lot of people need to hear this. And from if I can pick up that we were, this was all planned about us going in there decades ago. Oh, yeah. And then there's something that's supposed to happen to us. Yes, the, the, uh, you can go back even to <coughs> to the, as I say, the main societies that, that, that stuck their head up. They probably always existed in one, under one name or another, but they, they put their head up in the 1800s, and um, that was when the big push to, to really forward the, the Darwinistic theories came along, which was to dispel all ideas of the old gods and old religions and bring in a scientific dictatorship type of system where we'd be trained by experts and we would believe the experts the way we used to believe what priests said. And that has happened. And uh, it was Professor Thomas Huxley, uh, who was a best friend of Tar Charles Darwin, who picked certain people to be authors that would be made to be famous, uh, like H.G. Wells in the 1800s. And he, he predicted the whole uh, setup for the, for the, for the 1900s. They, they, they talked about creating a system of free love to destroy the last vestiges of the tribal system, which was marriage uh, between man and wife, and how they would uh, separate the children from, from the adults, and the state would bring up the children under a scientific formula where the children would become basically um, almost robotized uh, wards of the state. They would do what they were told. The whole thing was to dominate uh, what they called inferior types, those with less IQs, and they believed, being Darwinists, that they had the right, because of the superiority of intellect and wealth, uh, to run the planet and, and direct the planet as they pleased. Their biggest problem were the masses who might object. So they'd have to train the masses um, in different uh, ways without the public being aware they were being trained and that their ideas that they would have, uh, their opinions they would hold and even fight for were not actually their opinions. They'd been uh, um, marketed right into their minds. And you'll find that's happened today. Uh, but they've wrote lots of books about this from the top the main players, and uh, right up through the 1900s, we have we have many of the major players that help formulate the system, and actually have brought us to where we are today, writing about it in their own memoirs in the early 1900s onwards. Uh, nobody oh, yeah. reads the books. <laughs> I always thought uh, 1984 was just a, a bizarre piece of science fiction fantasy. Uh, yeah. Uh, seems like every page is coming through today. Yes, it is, because once again, if you went to the history of the author, and uh, Blair was his name, and uh, he came from a family of high um, bureaucrats and people who worked for the home office and, and the foreign office in the British government. His father, uh, in the 1930s, was the, the overseer for Burma, for the British Opium Corporation, and that came out in Parliament by a, a politician called Thomas, or Thompson, and because they just found out that they had a department of opium, they didn't know. And when they checked into who owned this, this opium corporation that the British taxpayer was funding and paying the salaries of all the employees, it turned out to be a crown corporation. It was only the British nobility and royalty that had shares in it. Oh, okay. Now let me... Yeah, now it seems like heroin and, and opium production is five times higher than before the war. Yes, it is. Now, you said something about the crown, and this is another misconception a lot of people have. They think of the crown, they think of the queen, boom. Yeah. You know, and for whatever reason, Americans have been brainwashed thinking that, gosh, if we only had a, a royal mm -hmm. family, like, you know, like it was pathetic the way this country almost went into mourning or national mourning over princes died. Well, yeah. uh -huh. it's not ours, you know? Sorry, get over it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know. Mm -hmm. they, they just long to be subjects or something, yeah. but the crown, people misconstrue that to mean like the monarchy. The mm -hmm. crown is a, a completely separate entity. It is. 
the, the crown goes back into a feudal system where they had their own laws, and they still do have their own laws for royalty and nobility. They cannot be tried in a, norm, a normal court of law. They must be only tried amongst their peer group. And, of course, they have a different set of rules of things which they're allowed to do, um, which uh, is pretty well anything at all. Isn't it true they operate out of the six-acre area called the City of London, which is basically a, a separate nation-state? It has a sovereign status, yeah. And it definitely does have some of their, their big uh, organizations based there. But, yeah, they live around London and in the areas around London, and they have offices and, and the second and third and fourth homes within London when they have to go in, uh, all the big players. But we call it in Britain, we call it the establishment. It's always been there. It's so above government. Huh? One of the stories you, you told, um, is what made you wake up? I mean, what, what set the light bulb go off of this? And it was when you're a young man uh, living in Scotland, like after World War II. Yeah. The same thing we were promised here, the peace dividend. Oh, once we, this one, <laughs> we don't need to spend all this money on military, the peace and prosperity will be unbelievable. We're all going to, uh-huh. you know, thanks for sending your kids to die for us. Now, here's the results. We're going to reap the benefit. And that never has, does happen, does it? It never happens. In fact, if you once in a while uh, um, here in Canada, they'll show you old reruns of, of our history, path news types uh, of reruns going back to before World War II. And there was a big rush then after the League of Nations was signed. That was a precursor of the United Nations. And, and uh, you, you saw all these British uh, ships dumping thousands of tons of ammunition and firearms into the ocean under the pact they signed then to disarm. And, and, as, and, and as they were doing that, the same boys who owned the armaments companies were, were pushing for war, a second war with Germany so that they rearm all over again. Yeah, but after World War II and before World War II, they said, if we fight this war, and they said the same thing in the First World War, then everyone in Britain will have a home to live in. Because most folk at that time in Britain never owned their own home. It was, it was a foreign concept to the average person in Britain. There's only a small minority who actually owned their own house. And everyone else had to rent. And the, the wages and incomes and the prices were pretty well manipulated and fixed. So the average person could never save money. That was the way this, the British system was so rigidly uh, regulated. And so after World War I came along and they were running out of men... Um, and so they said, well, we'll build all these houses for you with your tax money and give you something back for the first time from your tax money if you, if you just fight this war. Well, after the war, it never happened, so they tried the same thing in the Second World War. And then they opened up old condemned buildings to house the people in. I was born in one, a one-room apartment with four people living in the room. And uh, that, was, that, was, uh, that was way long after World War II. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I thought at the time, too, when I started to, to realize what was happening, before I was five, I went into libraries because I, I could read before I went to school. And um, I, I, I looked at books to, to see all these things, because the, everyone's still talking about what happened during the war. In 1952, there was still rationing, or 1951, they were still giving ration cards to every British person for food. And uh, so I went into the, into the libraries, and, I, and lo and behold, um, I, I, I read this kind of stuff, and I, and I said, how come if Britain is such an old empire, and they fought wars for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they looted all the gold from Spain, and they looted gold from this country and France and so on, how come only a small minority in London and their descendants ever benefited from it? And that, that, was, that was my wake-up call right there. They are masters at mind control and brainwashing. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a victim of it. I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm learning here in these last couple of years that just about everything I believed in has been a lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that's a hot debate in this country is health care. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh-huh. Hillary care. Oh, my God. You're going to turn the thing over to the government? What can the government do right? Mm-hmm. They have basically turned us against our own government. And now, government, according to, you know, the way this country did start off was we the people. Mm-hmm. We the people, we are the masters of our government. They are subservient to us, and we hire government to do things that we can't individually do, such as build roads, bridges, um, you know, armaments, defend the country, so on and so forth. When it comes down to, say, health care, like, 
Oh, you can't have that. Corporatism's good. Privatization's good. I mean, they're selling our ports. They're selling our public roads. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they've brainwashed us into thinking that everything public is therefore socialism evil. Yeah. And But give it to the capitalist uh, elite, and they can take care of it better for you. Well, again, uh, that is what Quigley said, remember, for the in his own book, Tragedy and Hope, and the Anglo-American establishment. It was his other book. And he said, he said, we are creating a new type of, uh, a new system more on the ground, along the, the, the grounds of, or the ways of a feudal system, a new feudal system of public-private partnership, which in, in reality, he said, uh, the CEOs of the big international corporations will be the new feudal overlords. Now, my, my understanding of public-private partnership has always been fascism. Uh-huh, yep. It's more than fascism. What it means, really, is that the public play, pays for, for the building and the maintenance of, and 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 uh, the private part is to reap uh, the profits. A, a good example here in this country is our uh, dams. You yes. Know, we, we built these dams out of public funds to provide us cheap, low-cost electricity, and, and somehow they all got sold off. Yeah. And they're doing it worldwide. You must remember that everything that's happening to the United States has already been happening to most of the other countries in the world for long before. You were the last one to, to use the same system to be brought into the fold, you see. And you'll find the same company based in London, uh, is t- it, will, it will end up owning the water rights of the world. Every little pool, a pond, dug well, drilled well, whatever, across the planet will be owned by them eventually and natural gas. We've seen it here in Montana. Yeah. Already. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, one of the biggest hoaxes is that these super, super capitalists are... They're the ones who fund, and they love communism. I mean, mm-hmm. communism is their favorite form of government because yeah, they, they, that, yeah. they only have to deal with one or two entities at the top, and mm-hmm. they can control all the masses through a totalitarian regime. Yeah. They, it's unbelievable. And if you look at America and compare it to the Communist Manifesto, we've adopted almost every plank here in this country. You have. Uh, you have. And it was meant to be so because... Uh, it's a dialectical process. You must create an enemy to terrify the public so that you can tax them even further and experiment with a new type of system which will be brought in globally. And that's why they created the, the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was heavily funded from New York and London from the very beginning. And even some top players in, uh, who were lords in the British government, uh, system, like Lord Bertrand Russell, he, he, in his own memoirs, he said that he was sent to to uh, China back in the 1920s to teach at universities and to, to teach the beginnings of communism. Now, why would the top capitalists, the British uh, crown and royalty, be sending one of their own brethren, a lord, over there to teach communism? It's only when you go into the histories you realize, no, they created their the supposed opposite. Yeah. And, and the synthesis was the reason, because when you create two conflicting systems, eventually you get war-weary, the people are want peace, they're terrified of being bombed out of existence, and that was really pushed in the 60s and 70s to terrify everyone. And then you, you amalgamate the two systems together into the third way. And Plato called it the third way. He says that this is a technique. You create two opposites, warring factions, make the people war-weary, and then blend them into the combination of the two. And that's where you have a fascist elite at the top running things un- unhindered, and they have a communistic-type bureaucracy running the people in a, in a communistic fashion. And they have written in all their books, all from the capitalist side, that they favored collectivism uh, more than any other form of government for controlling the public. And that's such an easy sell to an ignorant masses because you promise them something for nothing. We're all going to share the wealth. We're yeah. all going to be the same. We're all going to be the benefit. No one's going to be richer than others from each to according to his needs and all that kind of baloney, yeah. which never comes to pass. Never, no. Fails the fuel. I remember when uh, they had decided, and I'm sure they probably decided uh, when they set up the Soviet Union when they would uh, dismantle it. Uh, that's how far ahead they plan everything. And... Um, when the so-called Berlin Wall went down, uh, just by chance, of course, and uh, everyone says, oh, well, that's strange. Uh, then then uh, I remember reading in a British newspaper, I think it was the Daily Mail, uh, and a big picture there of this man coming out of a building with a big, big bag, and it happened to be a guy, Solomon, 
who was the chief banker for the Soviet system, who happened to be a cousin of the Rothschilds, and, and it was a, a big, a big write-up about uh, the strange concept of this communist country that supposedly uh, didn't use uh, the capitalist system, and yet the, this uh, Solomon was was leaving the Soviet Union with all the loot, billions and billions in dollars, and going back to London. <laughs> So, yeah, they were completely ripped off. You know, yeah. One of the, the great mind control things to make people live in fear, and I never could even as a young kid understand this, why would the average Soviet family want to annihilate the average American family? And, and yeah. we, by keeping our, our society separate with news blacks out and the communists living, all mm-hmm. these people are living under you know, horrible, 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 and, and you guys, and whatever stories they told us to them about us, but never did we get together. It was always the sable-rattling of our leaders would see on TV and like, yes. oh my God, you know, it's, it's tough. They're going to nuke us, you know. Mm-hmm. And yes. We just blindly follow through with whatever they want us to because of the very mm-hmm. bad guys. And it was the same too with Lord Bertrand Russell. See, Lord Bertrand Russell, uh, while he was promoting uh, this communistic style and, and free love, he had experimental schools authorized by the Crown back in the 1920s, right through the 50s and 60s. He was still alive. And he was a guy who set up the anti. Uh, war movement and he it was him who took the old occultic sign turned upside down for ban the bomb and he ran the committee of 100 you'll find that in, in mem- his own memoirs and the committee of 100 was the was the radical side that would storm American bases and smash down the outer perimeter fences uh, and it was all a show to get big publicity to terrify everyone of a reality that was never meant to happen uh, but the, the psychological impact was to terrify the whole world and to get thousands of people marching for peace and, and also to give up all their rights in the process. You know, it's just like when they have the G8 meetings and the uh, planned anarchists are always there to riot. And Yes. They're funded by the same people. They're funded and coordinated. And I'll tell you one thing. You see, I used to be heavily involved, much bigger than most folk now, because I use different names, uh, and uh, in the music industry for writing and for performing and also um, uh, in other ways, even in session work and guitar and so on. And, and uh, sometimes you'd be, you go to a country and someone would approach you and say, could you sing at a charity event? And you say, well, sure, you know. And in Canada, I, I'd come over uh, for a visit at the time. I was still, I was living in Norway. And I came over for a visit. And uh, a girl says, could, would you play at this um, workers' meeting? I says, well, sure. It was a big, big function in Toronto. And uh, I sang a couple of songs and sat down. Then I was invited into the back room where the major members came in and the other players and performers. But also the people who were there were the ones who ran uh, the left-wing movements in, in the country. And then after that, there was a select few taken even later into the night into another place outside uh, into an apartment. So there was only about 12 of us there. And because I'd, 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 this girl had asked me, I'd sort of, she just come along, I went along, and a guy came in who just came over from the, the Moscow University. He just got off the plane. He had been based in California before he went to Moscow University, and he was also English. And he sat and, and started telling them all of their plans for, for um, networking all of the radical groups together, uh, all radical fundamental and, and, and atheistic groups all together, combine them all, including the homosexual movements and lesbian movements. And I sat and listened to all of this, you know? And I, I says, well, what is this? I just came to play a song. And, and then, uh, well, the thing was what got me, and I asked him, I says, well, how come? I says, how come you can, you can, this is during the Cold War. I says, how come you can come from Britain, go and live in California, run the top communist societies in California uh, go over to, to and study in, in the Moscow University and then uh, walk right into Canada and no one bothers you and that's when he stopped and gave me this strange blank, nobody had asked him before she told me that all of the agencies and all of the countries would, would know him, there's no doubt about it and, and he worked for a higher group than any of them higher than communism the ones who controlled communism and capitalism, that's why he had a free hand to go anywhere he wanted to. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've, 
been fighting the environmental extremist movement here for, God, 25 years. Uh-huh. And these poor working ants at the bottom, you know, the ones that show up and wear their, their, their flannels and go tie themselves to a tree and file a lawsuit. Yeah. And the same with the radical lesbian gay movement, the militant part. They don't even realize that they're a creation of the people they hate. That's right. They don't know. They don't, they're all being used, and that's the, the macabre beauty of this technique. They find people who are on the fringes, who are left out of society, and they give them a form of hope. And they also boost their egos, telling them some of them will even take over and, uh, and fund them too, and, and then lead them. And they always use these groups. And once they've used them, they destroy them. They have, they have no personal interest in what you think, what you believe, or, or your sexual preference or anything else. Is They don't care. And um, you've got to understand those at the top almost see themselves as another race. They are psychopathic. They're inbred psychopaths. They don't have empathy for ordinary people. They don't have it at all. It doesn't exist in them. You have to be a psychopath if you think killing four billion people is a good idea. Yes, or, or even a thousand. You know, I mean... Mm-hmm. Yeah, these people, these people uh, say the end justifies the means, and they have used this down through the ages to get wars begun, started. Um, they've used uh, covert groups to, to start the killings and blame someone else. This is a favorite technique down through the ages, you know. Now, how do you see, I mean, cause obviously you've been on the inside and gotten their plans and talked to folks. What is their agenda or the the motive, well, the means on how they're going to exterminate four billion of us. I've got some mm-hmm. hints, perhaps famine, perhaps the biological bird flu. Uh, I don't think nukes because it's going to mess things up a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure, I don't even see this is the thing too. Uh, down through the ages, they've used all of these methods. Uh, nothing is new. Nothing at all is new. Um, when you look back in old times when they would besiege a castle, and most castles were like city towns with big walls around them, they would cut off your water supply so that they had to own your water. They had to stop food from coming in and wait until you'd use the food within till you're starving. They used plague because they had, they knew even thousands of years ago that diseases like smallpox, some people became immune when they recovered. They would use those as special troops, companies, and they would fire infected bodies over uh, with ballistas over the, the, the walls of, to, to incite people and spread plagues, etc. So they'd used all this kind of stuff in past ages. Uh, these are standard warfare techniques. Warfare isn't just uh, bang, bang, you're dead. Uh, it, it, there's many things, including economics. Yes, and not only animals, they used humans too. They'd find where the nearest plague was. They'd get the guys who'd had that particular one and recovered, and they would use them to handle the bodies and to fire them over. Great. Yeah. Um, the, uh... You see, they don't even have to do that because they're already training... Uh, those young children who are growing up now into a whole new belief system, a new reality. Michael Gorbachev, and we forget that he was the president of the Soviet Union. Uh, Michael Gorbachev has written books. He now works for the United Nations. And Yes, and, and he has the green cross of the Knights of Lazarus flying outside. They're all knights, you see. And, um, and he wrote one of his books towards a, a new civilization towards a new beginning he, he said it is I myself am a, 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 I'm personally an atheist he said it, then he goes on to say we he doesn't say who we are but he says we are presently in, in the, uh, uh, creating a new religion for the, for the general population which will be taught to the young it will be based on a form of earth worship what he meant by that is that through indoctrination of catastrophes, through overpopulation, global warming, all of the terrifying scenarios they can create in the, in the minds of a child, um, those children will voluntarily allow themselves to be sterilized to save I, Mother Earth. Yeah. I connect the dots on this all by myself before I even knew any better. I, you know, there's always been desire for world domination. Yes. Catholic Church or Genghis Khan or mm-hmm. uh, the emperors of Rome. But there's always been a pocket of resistance somewhere, or there's a slave uprising, or people get tired of it, or they overdo mm-hmm. themselves. But they've never had complete 
no one's pulled it off yet. And I said, there's mm-hmm. one way they can do this. Mm-hmm. You find the most common enemy that everybody's going to agree with, mm-hmm. and then they'll all lockstep go towards it. And I said, it's going to be the Earth. It's like, save the planet. We save all planet. have something in common mm-hmm. now. Let's all work towards saving the planet. And, we'll, and damn, it's unfolded before our eyes. Yes, and also, you see, they have many think tanks in a pyramid structure from the top all, all the way down, working on different aspects of public planning, propaganda, um, information, and so on. And one of them, one of their big think tanks is called the Club of Rome. And uh, the Club of Rome, the founders themselves, published a book called, uh, it's called um, The First Revolution. And it's about, it's about the actually the first type of a new type of revolution but it's called the first revolution in there they talk about the, how the founders had been told to find ways of uniting the planet and they discussed invasions from outer space and could they convince the public to unite etc etc uh, that may, might not work um, and it is then we hit upon the idea of using overpopulation and threats to the environment is, is the very possible thing they could implement and make people believe. Now, Rothschild's uh, dynasty is the, is the main mover behind the uh, environmental movement, is that right? Uh, the Rothschild is only one of them. Uh, there's, there's about 12 major banking families, but even then, they're, they're, most of the people who really run this world never have their names mentioned in newspapers. They have incredibly large amounts of money, very old dynasties, and and um, and they keep out of the public limelight. Where would you recommend our listeners go to get news? I mean, we've got the Internet, obviously. Uh-huh. Uh, we've got this radio station. But when you look at the mass media, whether it's the uh-huh. magazines, the tellies, uh, other radio stations, uh, cable, satellite, I mean, that is mass hypnosis. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, repetition. They all see the same things at the same time to get it across to us. And uh, you, you can't really, what you have to do, because uh, even, even, I mean, most coast-to-coast little, even the AM stations like Toronto, all they do is parrot the main news given to them by router and API. And so it's, it's a, what you have now is really controlled news all coming from a, a two sources, yeah. and they just parrot the same thing. And the more they parrot it, the more the public thinks it must be true, because everywhere they, they tune into is saying the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a simple technique to dominate the media. Yeah, I, I challenge a lot of people to debate me, and once they get past their repeated cliches, they're pretty empty. Yes. And you see, you have to go into people's lives, like, like we're talking about George Orwell and his father. I mean, he, he, in his own biography, he, he tells you, he says that his father uh, was the, in charge of the British Opium Corporation. And then he says, I myself was groomed to work for the same establishment. That's why he was let in on the understanding of the techniques of revolutions and 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 wars to bring us to a, a future world where terrorism would be everywhere. He knew the whole agenda, and he turned against them after he came back from the Spanish Civil War when he realized that the communists and all of the other opposing factions at the top were joined at the hip. The people down below didn't know. Uh, I think I was listening to Rince the other night, and it was just a good example of how these people stay within themselves. Uh Al Gore's daughter just got married a month or so ago, and she married, gave the name out, and Rince go look it up, and I knew who it was. I can't remember right now. It's J.T. somebody or Pete. But it's one of the original families that was at Jekyll Island. Yes. Uh It's like, damn, they don't out of the circle much, do they? <laughs> they don't. They, they are incredible. And even Charles Darwin, the same thing. Charles Darwin belonged to some of these uh, secret organizations. His father had brought out uh, a book on the origin of species before he did, because all it was was a high, the higher Masonic belief system of evolution coming from slime. It's really, it's really um, Hinduism. You start off as slime and amoebas and work your way up. And and uh, his grandfather's book didn't get very far, so they had to make Charles a star, and they built him up to be a star for a whole year in all the media before the public eventually saw his books on the shelves. They made him into a star by saying he was one over and over and over, and a genius. But Charles Darwin himself, 
uh, only married into one other family as his father had, as his grandfather had. Now their family was the Wedgwood family that has the big pottery uh, factories and so on. And um, when Charles's wife died, he married his mother's sister, uh, who was a Wedgwood. They were all Wedgwoods. So the Darwins only intermarried for generations into one other family, the Wedgwoods. Yeah. It's um, hard for people to, to believe that they are being hypnotized. I mean, it's the, mm -hmm. the grids out there, the matrices out there, uh, the, the constant reinforcement every day, and we don't even know what they're dropping on us from the sky. I mean, they, they like to poo-poo it because somebody discovered Kim Trail. Oh, yeah. that's that conspiracy wacko stuff. Well, they didn't then stop it then it's not a big deal well Rumsfeld you see here's the thing after 9-11 uh, many little quips come across television programs and news stations which the big boys or at least the front men say themselves and I was watching uh, a little bit in someone else's television because I didn't have one at the time I didn't want one and uh, and Rumsfeld was asked look if another terrorist attack happens on a major city like this on a bigger scale how are you going to stop or control the panic? And he said, we have aerosolized Prozac and Valium uh, ready to spray over large areas when required. And that's when it hit me. So I knew they were using aerial spraying to modify the weather and, and under weather warfare. Uh, that's in a treaty that the U.S. and Britain and other countries signed at the United Nations in the 1970s. They would spray the atmosphere with uh, aluminized uh, content, aluminum oxide and other metals, and then use harp on top of it because harp then works better uh, because they can make a, a, a better circuit out of the atmosphere by the spring. But I, but I thought there'd be more th to this than, than, than meets the eye, because they never do two things or one thing at a time. They'll do multiple things. And it made perfect sense they would also use uh, tranquilizers to tranquilize whole vast populations while they bring us through the greatest changes in history into a completely new way of living. You know, we say all the time... Or, uh, most Americans do. How could those people in Nazi Germany have been so stupid? Didn't they see what was going on before their eyes? I mean, mm -hmm. we're living through what I believe may be a worse nightmare. That is worse. It is worse. Uh, you've got to be able to jump from where we are as ordinary people and jump into the mindsets of military planners and strategists. And when you see what they, they plan for the future, and it truly is a completely radically, radically different society than the one we know now. And if it's a planned society, you, will, you won't have a child unless authorized. Uh, you will serve a world state. And they've, they've said that in all their charters, including the Council on Foreign Relations. And your information will be censored, even on yeah. the Internet. Yeah, and, and eventually, you will have no in, uh, ability to even think independently as an individual. Because they, they really do mean this, that they, they're going to take us from computer, which is a... Uh, it was really a conditioning method to get you hooked on something, then to the iPod, then to an implanted chip. And they've had global meetings, they have they've implanted chips ready to go, which will interface with your nervous system into regional computers. And you can find this at Loyola University, unless they've pulled it in Louisiana, because that's where they had their global meetings on this, this brain chip. And um, it, it, so this is a, a training method from computer to get us hooked on it to the iPod and, and then cell phone, etc., right down to a brain chip and how much more convenient it will be. But once everyone has it, they it, it, it said at the Loyola, the Loyola World Science Meeting on this particular chipping process, they said once this, this happens and everyone has the chip, uh, they'll be unable to think of themselves as separate individuals anymore. It will be impossible to think of yourself. He said, think of it more like the hive. And that's when I thought about the Borg from Star Trek. That's what they're talking about. You know, and, and they're here. I mean, because... Yes, uh, it's here. Yeah. stories about... Uh, you can see how they sell this. Mm -hmm. Here's the family that's volunteered to take the first chip, and yeah. oh, we're so happy. We'll always know where our child is. I'll never lock that's right. out of my house again. I just swipe my hand and mm -hmm. I'll never have any worries about medical if I'm unconscious I mean I can't I'm so grateful you gave this to me mm -hmm. and like and I saw all the networks sell this thing and you're like well here's here's Mr. and Mrs. Future Couple and look how happy they are because they've taken the chip that's right and, and you also have companies now 
which are really fronts for the NSA because the guys who head them uh, admit they're NSA ex-employees, uh, chipping youngsters, teenagers for like the Badger clubs, uh, nightclubs across the world. They have them in Holland and Spain and elsewhere where they, they chip you in the arm. It's a passive chip. But they can actually put uh, your ID in there and put a, a whole bunch of credits in there that you pay for in advance. And you can show off by not having to pull money out of your pocket in front of the girlfriend and just swipe your arm past this little, you know, infrared thing. Well, I saw a story just two weeks ago where this large chip company has started chipping the babies in the hospitals. And, of course, yeah. the little band they put on their legs, right out of the womb, we put this ban on, so therefore there'll never, ever, ever be a problem with baby swapping or losing a baby, and uh-huh. you know. And so they've already conditioned the. They've conditioned the people too. Yeah. Yeah, this is a wonderful thing. I, yeah. I'm going to be absolutely guaranteed this is my baby, and you know mm-hmm. the medical records right there for anybody who comes in and checks on it. Oh, I've, I've, so much better. Thank you. That's right, and the British government and other governments have already said that they will implant. Uh, it's always the same two groups to begin with: it's the very young and the elderly, the, the most powerless. You go for first. And, and they've said that they're going to implant all those who possibly have Alzheimer's with the chip. That's going to be law. Let's talk a harp, about HARP a little bit. Mm-hmm. What do you know about HARP? Because uh, some folks know about it. Oh, yeah, that's that uh, Tesla experiment up in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to cook the ionosphere and mm-hmm. uh, maybe free electricity for us all. But they've got over, what, 44 installations of these things now? There's over 54, 57, I think, that they admit to. And uh, they have them. They can coordinate them all together and hit any place on the planet or a whole continent if they wish. But these are multi-use machines, from what I understand. Cause oh yeah. Action of knowledge about them is that yeah. they can alter weather. They can focus destruction beams yeah. uh, on anywhere in the world they want, mm-hmm. and also for mind control. Yes, it's, it's, it's so. Uh, for their point of view, it's a wonderful tool, <laughs> and, and and so. Yeah, it's an old technique. They put a lot of money into it, and they've already admitted that they put their faith in science to control the world and the populations, and they mean it. And this this harp technology, uh, literally, um, as I say, it's signed into a treaty at the United Nations. Everyone should look it up. Signed in the 1970s. They can also cause earthquakes with it, tsunamis with it, droughts in it for warfare purposes, or flooding for warfare purposes. That's a great way to extort a nation. And that's happening. They're using it. Uh, if you go through the shortwave bands, you can actually get over 20 places where the harp is being used 24 hours a day now. That started about six years ago. And I have all of them all written down here. I have all the frequencies. And so what it also can do is carry a secondary carrier signal which can uh, pulse at the same frequencies as a human brain. That's also documented in the treaty at the United Nations. And they can make whole populations either very aggressive, very passive, or, or anxious, uh, you know. Uh, so this is all worked. It's not a trial and error thing. It's down to fine art now. I've um, had listeners over the years call the station and talk about turtles. And they go, oh, yeah, there's alien bases, there's super military stuff, and they're underground. And, yeah. and I kind of, and I brainwashed, I was conditioned, and I poo-pooed them off. I go, yeah, yeah, right, right, uh-huh. right. And then when I was listening to you the other day, and you talked about a machine that is owned by the Rand Corporation, yeah. currently up in Greenland. Oh, they have many of them, yeah, that, many of them. That yeah. can dig, I don't know what diameter, but uh, mm-hmm. dig a tunnel of five miles an hour? An hour, yeah. Five miles an hour through any kind of rock. Uh-huh. And at what diameter are we talking about here? Uh, the largest one to let the public know about. Uh, you, you, and, and remember, this thing passes through, and also it, it uh, melts rock, and it will solidify behind the machine and cause a casing. So it's, it's all in one. It, it forms all those purposes. You could actually put in uh, two railroad tracks side by side, you know, going going together, one way and the other. Uh, when it passes. So how big is this network uh, here on the North American continent? We have no idea, except they've had these things since at least the end of World War II. You see, sciences are all, it's, it's the greatest thing. Uh, we, we, they've done a very good job in the last oh, almost 15 to 20 years in convincing us that they're going to they'll, they'll let us know all the latest technology and science they have. That's the biggest lie ever. Your iPod. 
Uh, yeah, and so uh, we forget during the Cold War, uh, people were getting killed and assassinated if they, if they knew too much about high military secret technologies. And they've always kept the higher technologies secret from the people. The trick is to make the people convinced that they are being told about the latest uh, attempts at, at uh, whatever cloning or, or electrical technologies. That's the trick is to convince us, and that's why they fund these big magazines like Popular Science. And, and the average reader will think, well, I know it all. I know what they're capable of doing. No, no, you're not. You're, you're kept in the dark. That's the purpose of Popular Science. <laughs> I've heard that whatever we see, the military's had 60 years before. It, I'd see even longer, you know. I'd see even longer. But, I mean, think of the money, uh, the old t industries that keep going. Like, we've got tunnel-making machines there that can be mass-produced. Mm -hmm. I mean, just how much, what's it cost now? $20 billion a mile to build a stupid ancient highway? Yeah, well, yeah, because, uh, see, we live in such a corrupt system, and that, again, is another thing we have to understand. What we see at the bottom, and we call corruption, is normal practice above higher higher levels. We all know we can get hydrogen from water. I mean, mm -hmm. it's there, the technology. We've all seen the machines. We've all seen yeah. cars run on it. Mm -hmm. Why are we still going down this asinine path of, of oil? It's because it was never intended to. When they gave us the car, they already had planned a whole hundred years of, of because I say the world is just a business plan. They'd already planned where they would take the world, and they did not want people. They wanted people to travel, build up the factories, etc., for a short period while they financed through their taxes this global takeover and armies, etc. But they also wanted at the end to create a world society of collective society, uh, city states. Uh, now they call them habitat areas. They don't want people to have cars in the very near future. So that's why they never gave you any other technology. Oh, I just saw in today's morning paper out here in little Podunk, Montana, you know, somebody wants to build 700 houses on uh, 80 acres, you know, little mm -hmm. postage stamp lots, cluster housing. You don't need big yards anymore. We'll all pack it together. We'll yeah. have this little open space for you over here. It'll be wonderful. It's all Agenda 21. It is. Agenda 21, and even that's not the final solution to them. It's a stepping stone. We're conditioned like you train rats step by step. Once you accept one step, it's easier to accept the next step. It seems quite natural, and it's evolving. That's how we think.